Hello, and welcome to the Jacob Burns Filmcast. I'm co-host Paige Graham Prey, and today we're going to take the first of many dives into the Jacob Burns Film Center's archives. While the JBFC is perhaps best known as an art house exhibitor, we also host more than 150 special events a year, from Q&As and live performances to food tastings and book signings. From time to time, we'll share audio from these special events, offering you the opportunity to experience a JBFC live event from the comfort of your own home, or your car, subway seat, or airplane row, wherever you might be listening. In today's episode, we're going to highlight a Q&A from 2019, when we hosted a special screening of Neon's Apollo 11, a documentary that begins as a historical record but ends up being so much more. While the film ran for a number of weeks at the JBFC Theater, we also hosted a special event on March 10th, 2019, as part of ongoing JBFC series Inquiry, Science on Film. Following a screening of Apollo 11, the sold-out audience was treated to a Q&A with filmmaker Guy Reed and NASA astronaut Nicole Stott. Guy Reed, a former artist-in-residence at the JBFC, moderated a scintillating discussion with astronaut Stott, which I might add is really fun to say. Stott worked at NASA for 27 years, serving as a flight engineer and mission specialist on multiple missions. Aside from her major scientific achievements, which I would highly recommend looking up after this episode concludes, Stott was also part of the team that sent the first live tweet from space in 2009 and appeared in a Super Bowl commercial this past year promoting Girls Who Code. And now, without further ado, let's turn to Guy and Nicole. So I'm just wondering, Nicole, first question I've got is, when you were in, when you were in space and the first time you flew, and I guess you launched also from, from the same, mm-hmm. the same uh, from KSC, what was the first experience like of seeing the planet from space? Well, I think it's interesting because before you fly, of course, you look at all the pictures and the videos that you can, and you speak to as many of your colleagues as you can who have flown before you. And I think there's just nothing that can prepare you for something like that. Because uh, as much as you think you might have an idea of what it might be like, just like launching, you know, it's the same kind of thing. You think you might know what it might be like. And I think you just are overwhelmed by it in a way that almost doesn't make sense to you at first. And um, I, I thought maybe, okay, after you, okay, you have that first glimpse and that's that kind of wow, oh my gosh, how could our planet be any more beautiful than you know it seems right now, is that maybe you would get used to looking out the window and then it would kind of be like, you know, the on the airplane where, you know, people are pulling the shade down to watch the movie. And you never, and I hope we never, I hope we never get to the point where we're wanting to pull the shade down and watch the movie. Because every time you look out the window, there is a surprise, whether you've flown over that same place before. Um, you're overwhelmed again in some way. And I can tell you just in short, I found that, especially during the day, during the work day, if I floated to the window to see something during the work day, it's like you're sucked in. And I would have to set, set an alarm on my watch to remind myself that, hey, you're, you know, you're up here to do a job. You got to go back to work. And before the call from you know, Mission Control would come in, like, hey, Nikki, where are you? Because you, you would. It was just this overly 
stimulating, almost um, immersive experience that you wanted to stay there. So that's the short answer, sorry. <laughs> no, I mean, so you lived on the space station for three months. And um, I, you, the, the, what you're describing, I've heard some of the other guys talk about it as earth gazing. It's kind of like just it's looking out the window. And I'm just wondering if, you know, the, the, the term that always seems to um, crop up is this term uh, from the other different astronauts I've interviewed, is this, this idea of awe, this, this moment where seeing something which seems so familiar, we've got so much imagery of it, it's on our iPhones or on, on the internet, we've seen these images. But, you know, one thing that I was kind of struck by in the film, you know, this is obviously in July, it will be 50 years, and we just did an event down at Kennedy Space Center to celebrate um, Apollo 8, which um, flew... Uh, in, in December of, of 1968, and it was the first craft. It didn't land on the moon, but it, it circled the moon, and it took a picture, and that picture was the first picture of the whole Earth taken by human hands. And so, I'm, I mean, we've been talking a lot about how that image of seeing ourselves in that way has had such a profound legacy in how we imagine ourselves. And I'm just wondering, from your perspective, as someone who also worked at, at Kennedy Space Center, what what, what do you think the biggest takeaway is from the Apollo missions? And do you think it's that, or is there, is there other things that can emerge? I mean, there probably are other things. You know, as I was watching the film tonight, I kept thinking, man, you know, reality is really beautiful all on its own. We didn't have, I mean, this is remastered film that was reality. There was no, like, graphic recreation of anything. I mean, it was it. And you know, just how stunning that can be, that, you know, the engineering of it, the people side of it, all of it, the interaction, the relationships was was really beautiful on its own. And the, you know, the technical side of it, my husband was mentioning, you know, before I walked up, he's like, man, you know, this was all like slide rule, you know, and you saw all those guys in the, and I hope you noticed in the launch control center, the one woman, Joanne Morgan, she's like the only woman that was in the launch control center for the Apollo launches. She was awesome. I got to work with her at Kennedy too. But, um, you know, and the screens with the little numbers on it and the scribbling going on and how just amazing it is the really complex things we can do when we put our mind to it. And I think Apollo was all of that. But I think in the end, it was about like human beings just the, the getting a totally new perspective on who and where we are. And to me, just kind of this mysteriousness of being able to set foot on another planetary body is, I mean, it's above and beyond anything we've done in a really long time. I, I mean, I appreciate everything I did and the blessing I had to be in space that way, but I even there imagine, man, what would it be like to like really physically find yourself someplace else like that? And then, you know, awe is the perfect word. Um, I think what Apollo did for us is it really put into perspective who and where we are. And we all say it in a little bit different way. You know, you, you have your words. I'm like the, you know, we live on a planet where all Earthlings, thin blue line is the only border that matters. Uh, you know, as part of Constellation, we have the, you know, one, um, what do we say, one... Uh, what, one planet, one, one planet, species, one, species one, future. one future. And I think that's what it was all about. And no matter where we explore from here on out, I think that's what it will continue to be about. Because we're always looking for ourselves through that exploration. 
even if it's the robotic missions, you know, some of the coolest stuff we see from Cassini is certainly these images of Saturn that we've never seen before. But ultimately, we're looking for that little dot of light between the rings that's us and, and rediscovering ourselves through those missions as well. Well, I think the other thing that's so remarkable about the difference between, you know, 69 and then, you know, the missions that you were on is that, you know, this was America versus the Soviets. And you know, I interviewed uh, Captain Lovell, who we saw in, uh, uh, he was the guy on, on, on Apollo 13. <laughs> so, um, and Tom Hanks played him in the movie. And uh, I interviewed him and he said that after he got back, he was on Apollo 8, but they did a big tour. And he said all these kids from other countries, you know, they didn't just tour America. The kids from India, kids from France were coming up and saying, we did it, we did it. And he was like, this is a French kid. <laughs> Which mean we did it, and then it was like, no, it was we. It was this idea that America did this, but in some respects, it was on, you know, on behalf of, of the whole species. And I just think that the, what's so beautiful about the the um, spaceflight experience is that, you know, as I said, it was us versus them in this situation. And then when you, fl you know, when you were on the International Space Station, it was 15 nations. 50 years ago, you know, or certainly 60, 70 years ago, some of those nations were at war with each other, Germany and Japan, uh, Russia and America. And then you had this incredible international crew. And I was just wondering if you could talk about that experience of flying with, with, with uh, astronauts and cosmonauts and taikonauts. Well, I think, you know, when we look at things in terms of legacy, too, I think that's what we'll look at from the International Space Station is that uh, it wasn't just, and it isn't just, you know, the United States. It's the United States in partnership with 15 countries. And peacefully, successfully, for over 20 years now, we have had crew members on board that station, you know, usually six crew members representing those 15 different countries, you know, working together kind of quietly, you know, without us even sometimes paying attention to them. And then tens of thousands of people that represent all of those countries down here on the ground doing the same. And I really believe that in the grand scheme of things, it's tempered a lot of that, you know, not so good stuff that continues to go on down here. But um, ultimately, it is absolutely the best model for how we have, I mean, really and truly, to live and operate here as crew members on Spaceship Earth. And that's from the relationship standpoint, as well as the fact that our planet really is this closed loop system. It is our life support system. And it's funny how we go to space and we purposely build this mechanical system with its thin metal hull that's kind of just like our thin blue line of atmosphere to hold all the good stuff in, you know, to keep us alive. And we establish, you know, the rules of engagement, and we write the operating procedures, and we decide what the greater good mission of that is of that, and then we work to it as 15 countries. And to me, it's just really a matter of scale down here to do that same thing. Yeah, Nicole mentioned we're, we're building this alliance at the moment of different international astronauts to come together uh, to talk about their experience um, in terms of humanitarian and environmental good. And one thing that's kind of, I've found remarkable is no matter if it's an astronaut from Japan who's Buddhist or uh, an African-American astronaut from Virginia who's a Protestant or an Indian-American astronaut who's 
Hindu, there seems to be this kind of common, undeniable experience that no matter what your kind of linguistic, cultural, religious background, there's something that seems to be shared. And I mean, Frank talked about that as the overview effect. And I'm just wondering, in terms of your own experience of comparing notes kind of thing, of flying in space and living in space, how have you, do you, do you believe that? Do you think there is this kind of universal experience um, of when, when humans go into space? Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, one of the things you see for sure when you look, you know, at the planet as this place kind of hanging in space, and I would say kind of perfectly placed hanging in space, you know, distance from the sun to keep us al alive and a little bit closer, a little bit further, not so good for us. Um, but you get this real sense of I mean, really undeniable interconnectivity, that there is there is nothing down here on this planet that isn't somehow dependent or reliant or impactful on everything else. And I think that crosses all cultural, all religious kinds of, um, you know, beliefs. It's just reality. And I think that any person who flies in space brings that back with them. Um, I know for myself, I mean, I, I knew intellectually that we live on a planet. I knew intellectually that we're humanity, that all life depends on this, you know, this thin blue line that protects and blankets us all. But I didn't find myself really ever thinking about that or considering the implications of it. And there is not a day goes by now that that's not just always like right there lingering in one way or another. And so, um, like all of us say, though, you know, I don't think you have to go to space to feel that. Guy, you're working really hard through the films you do and the creative, um, I don't know, these, these creative products, I don't even know how to describe them, to, to try to share that experience with everyone as much as possible. And um, I would hope that everyone who leaves here tonight would leave here as an earthling, considering yourself that, and try to just, just think about those things in your daily life and the kinds of impacts you can have on you know, life around you. Yeah, and with that, I mean, yeah. Fantastic. I'm just wondering if we could uh, maybe open it up, and I'm sure some of you guys have some, some questions. It's not every day you get to ask an astronaut. Uh, whatever you want to answer. Can you just grab the mic, sir? Hi, thanks for coming. Um, can you tell us what it's like? What it's like to take off on one of these rockets? Like, what's your responsibility? What are you doing? How long does that sensation last? Yeah, I, you know, I know what it was like to take off on a space shuttle. I can only imagine what it was like to take off on that Saturn V. Um, the space shuttle. You know, you get out to launch pad a couple hours before launch, and you get all snugged into your seat and strapped in and your stuff all situated. And really, the, the crew didn't have a whole lot to do as part of the countdown until about 20 minutes before launch. That's when you'd start to really engage. And so you'd fall asleep and kind of chill a little bit, you know? Um, and at that 20 minute point, you start to get engaged again, you're getting stuff all situated. And then it was about that 10, nine, you know, the kind of the classic 10, nine, eight point where you finally start to think, wow, I might actually launch and go to space today. And on the space shuttle, um, 
it was 10, 9, 8, 7, and then at six seconds, all the fuel in that big orange, that big orange tank in between was just liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen. And that would start flowing to the three little engines at the back of the orbiter. And I had always imagined, you know, thinking I knew what it was going to be like, I had always imagined that that would be, you know, you'd really start shaking then and you'd really feel it, but you didn't. It was kind of a little low rumble. And, um, but what it did was, because the engines were at a little bit of an angle, the whole vehicle, and I can't remember if it was forward or backwards, the whole vehicle would tip. And then as soon as it straightened up, that's when it hit, the countdown hit zero, and that's when those two solid rocket boosters on the side lit. And then, it's like that all of a sudden you got this reality, okay, that's what seven million pounds of thrust feels like. You know, you literally are kicked off the launch pad, and it feels like somebody's pushing you from behind, then all of a sudden three of you are sitting on top of you and you are shaking like you could have never imagined shaking. And I remember looking at cockpit video, thinking, oh, I'll be able to see how much I was shaking. And you look at it, and it's like, you know, it looks like you're shaking a little bit. I'm like, that is not what it felt like. It felt like the whole insides of your body was just like vibrating like jello. And I don't know if the engineers did this on purpose, but for like the first minute and a half, the first 90 seconds after launch, the crew can't do a whole lot. You know, you're monitoring things, you're changing screens, you know, pushing buttons to change screens to monitor different systems. Um, and that's what I remember thinking, there's my arm that weighed three times as much and was shaking more than anything. I'm like, please don't push the wrong button, please don't push the wrong button. But that, I don't know if they purposely did that or not, but it was a good thing because your body has to respond to that seven million pounds of thrust thing, all of that going on, and you're um, high-fiving the crewmate next to you, you know, you're smiling, like, I mean, it's just the smile that gets on your face, and there's the, like, the woo-hoo, you know, you want to woo, you have to do it, your body does it, but you don't want to be unprofessional and really yell out the woo-hoo. But two, you know, a little over two minutes goes by, those boosters separate, big bang, big flash, and and then, you know, you're not shaking anymore, but another six minutes, and then the tank, big bang, big flash, and then you go from, like, pinned in your seat, three Gs, to just like you were liberated. And you're, if you relax, your arms float up, and the pencil floats up on the tether, and anything that's not tied down flows up around you, and you cannot wait to get out of your seat and look out the window, first of all, but then, you know, just see what your body's going to feel like floating like that. Yeah, amazing. Wow. Oh, uh, sorry, have we got the mic? Yeah, right oh, here. hey, how you doing? Thank you. Uh, we heard earlier that you flew on the last flight, I think, of the shuttle Discovery before it was retired. And I'm, I'm curious how you felt about the fact that NASA retired the shuttle fleet and stopped launching astronauts into space. We had to rely on Russian technology to launch astronauts, and now it looks like we're going to have private enterprise sending people into space. And I'm wondering what you think about that whole uh, situation. Well, interesting that you asked that because yesterday was the eight-year anniversary of Discovery's landing after the final flight of Discovery. And I wrote a whole really long, I usually don't write long, like posts on Instagram or um, Facebook and stuff, but I wrote a long one this time. And um, the thing I said there was that um, during that time frame as we were getting ready to retire the space shuttle, this, this word bittersweet kept getting used. And I remember really hating that word. I mean, I still hate that word used with respect to it. I'm like, 
there is nothing sweet about this, you know, really. You know, there is some bitterness for sure, but sadness is what, you know, was was coming to mind for me all the time. And, uh, you know, and then I remember thinking that when we were on the runway, you know, we're reflecting, we're looking at this beautiful vehicle, you know, standing there proudly on its own gear and thinking about how safe it kept us getting to space and on orbit and then getting us home, you know, a little chirp on the runway. And I thought, okay, maybe that's the, the sweet part. Um, but I would love to have seen the shuttles continue flying. I mean, that, that vehicle performed beautifully. It's like we were meant to continue to fly the space shuttles. And uh, so, yeah, I'll just... I could do, guys look at me. I could talk all night about this. So I would love to have seen the shuttles continue flying. I think they should have. Unfortunately, our um, you know government-run, funded programs don't allow the overlap that way. Never have. Um, as far as the new vehicles coming along, um, I'm thrilled to see this happening. And you mentioned our our Russian partners. You know, flying, we flew, we were flying our crew members on the Soyuz in parallel while we were still flying shuttle, too. And I will just say I'm very thankful for that partnership that we've been able to continue. And next week, I think we have another crew going up uh, on the Soyuz. I'm very thankful for that partnership and how that's allowed us to continue uh, getting crew members to the station. And we just had Dragon do its test, and uh, yeah, these commercial vehicles are going to fly. Um, I will just say that there's a lot of NASA funding going into that too at this point, um, hugely supported to allow that to happen, and uh, really look forward to seeing my friends um, travel on those vehicles as well. Yeah, and just just one quick point about the sort of American rockets versus Russian rockets. If you look at SpaceX, um, it's an LLC registered in America, but the guy who started it, as you guys probably know, is not an American. The chief technology officer is not American. Uh, most of the stakeholders and shareholders are not American. So, you know, SpaceX is, is also a result of a sort of profound type of internationalism. So I think when people start tweeting about, yeah, American rockets, it's kind of uh, got to be a little bit careful now. Yeah. We'll uh, claim it, though. Yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah. claim it. Um, uh, if you just wait for the mic. Uh, any thoughts on Space Force? <laughs> Only that I think we already had one uh, through the Air Force. Now it's just got a name, and uh, I, I don't even know where to go with that one. <laughs> well, I mean, one, one quick point about Space Force, which is interesting, and we saw President Kennedy close out the film, you know, with his famous speech at Rice University in 1961. Um, you know, we go because it's had. Uh, that speech, <laughs> the haired speech, as we call it. Um, so, uh, you know, that, that I've been researching the build-up of, of how different agencies started. And there was, at one point, this idea that NASA would be under military. And actually, the People's Republic of China, the only space agency that are military, everyone else, uh, ESA, the Japanese, everyone's flying civilian programs. And there was a very conscious decision to do that because the idea was that space would be a new era. And if you look in the film, there was a, you know, a, a wonderful moment where they said, you know, this is about peace and, 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 and what we would say humankind now instead of mankind. So there was always this idea, you know, what they call astrofuturism, which we were talking about in the overview effects and Frank White, he's an astrofuturist. The idea is if we reimagine ourselves going outward, we can also reimagine who we are. 
And one of those things is to drop the militarism. Now, that isn't to say we should get rid of uh, you know, the military or anything like that. It's just to say that the idea is exploration and scientific understanding on behalf of all of us. And so that's, for me, the fundamental uh, power of the space program is, 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 showing, is showing that. You know, and that's, what it, that's how it exists now. Hi, um, thanks for coming. So you're like super cool because you're an astronaut and an aquanaut. And I wanted to, I was wondering if you could talk about the difference between being in space and being, you know, under the water, in water and things, and the, how you compare those two experiences, or if you can. You know, I, well, you know, I went and did the uh, underwater mission before flying in space. We did that as kind of an analog to what it would be like to fly in space. And it is absolutely the best analog to what it is like to live and work in space. And, uh, you know, I mean, I joke sometimes because we do other missions like go out to Utah Canyonlands or we go, you know, you, you hear about things like um, desert rats and these other kinds of uh, analog missions. But if there's a, I don't know, if there's an SUV anywhere in the vicinity of your analog mission, it's, it's not as analog as you want it to be. Um, but living and working underwater um, for 18 days on the Aquarius habitat, it sits at about 60 feet underwater. So once you're down there for an hour, you know, your body's saturated with nitrogen. So if something goes wrong, you have to deal with it at 60 feet. You're not swimming to the surface safely to, you know, to recover from that. And it's the same thing in space. You know, you can't just hop in your, you know, your Soyuz rescue vehicle and fly home anytime you want. I mean, you have to deal with things. 250 miles up there or 250,000 miles up there. Uh, you know, you can't just go out the door without special equipment on. We were doing uh, research inside of the habitat just like we would if we were inside the space station. Uh, we had our co communication protocols that were the same. So when we went out and did our spacewalks or our, you know, dives each day, we communicated with our topside team just like from space you would communicate with your mission control team on the ground. And uh, it, it really was absolutely the best prep for going to live on a space station. And when I think about seeing the Earth from space, kind of this macro view of our planet, you know, the outer space view of our planet, uh, when I think about going and living underwater, we kind of joke that it's the inner space view. And you're getting this almost this micro, it's like it's surrounding you in a way that uh, you just never really imagined before. And I love scuba diving, but it was kind, it was this like step above that because you had to live there too. Yeah. Oh yeah, we've got room. I think we've got enough time for two more. So you did mention the training that you had uh, underwater, but I'm just curious, like the what was the time frame? You know, when you applied to be uh, an astronaut, and when you actually went on the space shuttle, was it three years, four years, six years? I'm just a little. Uh, I'm not that knowledgeable about what your actual background is. Yeah, so I, I mean, I started out working as a NASA engineer at the Kennedy Space Center on the shuttle program and then on the space station program, and I was there for about 10 years. And then I applied to be an astronaut in 1998 and didn't get selected, and, but they offered me a job at the Johnson Space Center. And so I worked there for two years as a flight engineer on the shuttle training aircraft, which was that really cool corporate jet that we modified to you know, train astronauts how to land the space shuttle. And I feel like every job I had with NASA, I loved. 
I mean, I could have done that flight engineer job. I could still be doing it if we were still flying the things. I mean, it was outstanding. Um, in 2000, I was selected. Uh, when we were selected in our class, we were told that with the flight manifest, it would be like five to six years before our first flight. It ended up being eight to 10 years for our class, and that's because, in, sadly, in 2003, we had the um, Columbia accident. And so we had to recover from that, get back to flight. And so uh, my first flight was in 2009, and then I flew again in 2011. Okay, we've got, the guy's wearing a NASA hoodie, so we've got to pick this guy. <laughs> Um, what do you think about reusable rockets? I love them. The space shuttle was one. That was a, you know, I think that it's a, I think it's a really great idea. I think we just have to be careful which parts we reuse. And um, I think that's what we're looking forward to in the future. I'd love to see that space shuttle orbiter reusable come back to. Nicole, I just have one final question. Um, so most people's, Oh, I've, I've, there's only one astronaut I've met actually that hasn't that being an astronaut wasn't their plan A, which was Leland because he wanted to be an NFL player, um, and then he was an NFL player, and then he also was an astronaut. So, um, but most astronauts it's like a plan A, and so I always think it must be really difficult being like I'm going to be an astronaut, I'm going to be an astronaut, I'm going to fly in space, and then you go to space and you're an astronaut. And then you get home, and then it's like, okay, what now? Like, did you peak too early? Like, what? <laughs> like, what's this? Like, it's su it's such a difficult thing to become. I just my my question is, what do you do with that afterwards? Well, I I would have to say it was not my plan A either. I mean, I knew I wanted to know how things fly, and discovered that wow, if you want to know how things fly, why would you not want to know how rocket ships fly? And you know, took this path as a, a NASA engineer, really, and. I thought the astronaut, I mean, I watched that moon landing as a kid, um, have vivid memory of it, but I always, for the longest time, thought astronaut was something that only other special people get to do. So why should I even consider it? And why would anything I had done, you know, put me in a position that they, they'd select me? Um, so I never really looked at it as this possibility. And, and thankfully, not because anybody told me I couldn't do it. I mean, that, that is like, should be totally against the law. That's a sin to tell somebody they can't do something like that. Um, but yeah, absolutely. But thankfully, you know, later I, as I was working at the Kennedy Space Center and I saw astronauts coming through and that, wow, you know, 99.9% .9 of an astronaut's job is not flying in space. It's down here on Earth supporting other missions, like you saw Charlie Duke and the others, you know, is Capcom. It's, you know, getting, working on some of these new programs. It's all this stuff. It's training. It's not flying in space. And 80-something percent of their job was already a lot like what I was doing as a NASA engineer. And that's when I reached out to a couple mentors and said, hey, you know, what do you think about this? Should I fill out the application? And literally all they did was say, yeah, you know, pick up the pen and fill out the application. It doesn't hurt you, you know, that, and I think a lot of times we kind of self-sabotage. Um, so pick up the pen and fill out the application. Um, but I think there's, you know, in my mind, I'm off on an even greater adventure now, you know, with the work we're doing together to try to share the experience, 
with um, the art. I mean, I you know I had the chance to paint in space, and now I get to use artwork to share the experience. You know, there are a lot of people that don't even know we have a space station, uh, which is very sad. And so I feel like I I need to let those people know. And if art can open up that you know, imagine that understanding to them that I want to do it. And if I can work with kids all around the world doing, you know, space-themed art therapy programs, then I'm going to do that. And I think that it really I had the opportunity to fly in space so that I could now do these things. Not that was the peak of my life and it's over. Just say before we get... There's a really cool kid in here that is my son, and I get to spend a heck of a lot more time with him now that I'm not doing the astronaut show. Yeah, on that note, I'd love to just, I'd love you for, to, to, to help thank Nicole for being here. Nicole came all the way from Florida with her family, Chris and Roman, who, just wonderful. Thank you. And I'd just, I'd just like to make a, a, a brief, shameless plug for our endeavor. We're, the astronaut coalition that we're putting together is called Constellation.Earth. And so uh, you can go to the website and check it out. Uh, we're going to be doing some big events coming up uh, this year and next year. And I just want to, uh, you know, this is a brilliant series. Um, that this evening is part of the Science Inquiry series. And, you know, we're really lucky because, you know, Jake, I'm a massive fan of Jacob Burns. I'm an alumni fellow here. And, you know, I live in Brooklyn. There's lots of cool stuff going on in Brooklyn. To be honest, this, in my, in my opinion, this theatre has the most interesting conversations. So it's just, we're so lucky to have it. Um, and, you know... Tonight's made possible by uh, Northern Westchester Hospital um, and the Phelps Hospital. And I know that we've got Joel here tonight, uh, who's the CEO. So I just want to say a big thanks to Joel. Uh, really appreciate that. And we're going to be having more and more conversations with scientists um, in this space. So please follow the Science Inquiry uh, uh, initiative and uh, hope to see you all next time. Thank you very much. This podcast is supported by the Jacob Burns Film Center. It is mixed, edited, and published by Mike Toundrow and produced by me, Patreon Prey. Special thanks to Guy Reed and Nicole Stott for their fabulous discussion on Apollo 11 and Kervin Marseille for recording and editing their Q&A. Last but certainly not least, I want to note that JBFC series Inquiry, Science on Film, is sponsored by Northern Westchester Hospital and Phelps Hospital. As a nonprofit organization, the JBFC relies heavily on and is endlessly grateful to all the sponsors who make our work possible. Don't forget to subscribe and review the Jacob Burns Filmcast on your preferred podcasting platform. It helps other people find us and ensures you'll stay in the loop as new episodes are released. As a reminder, you can also find us on social media. We're JBFC underscore NY on Twitter, JBFC underscore Pville on Instagram, and Jacob Burns Film Center on Facebook and YouTube. If you have a question, comment, or topic you'd like us to cover in a future episode, email us. You can find us at jbfilmcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you at the movies.